BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. We've got a lot on the program today. In just a moment, Congressman Ro Khanna will be with us taking your calls. We're going to do a progressive town hall meeting here. And also, COVID and uh, shootings, is mass death now tolerated in America? Another shocking study. And geeky science. The Doomsday Glacier has bad news for the world, and it could happen in as little as three to five years, which is all very shocking stuff. So all that said, on the line with us is Congressman Ro Khanna. He represents the 17th District of California, the, uh, the uh, Silicon Valley area. is the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, a member of the House Armed Services Committee, the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. His website, khanna.house.gov, K-H-A-N-N-A.house.gov. And you can tweet him at Rep. Roe, R-O, Rep. Roe Khanna. Congressman Khanna, welcome back. So uh, what's on your mind today and, and anything you want to share with people before we start picking up phone calls? Congressman? Well, thank you, Tom. I am back in my uh, district today, but uh, we uh, have to continue to focus uh, on uh, inflation and uh, a number of issues that I've uh, said. I've said that the uh, President, uh, one of the things that we've done in the past is called preemptive buying, meaning uh, fuel and oil uh, both have dips and spikes, and there's no reason that the government can't be buying that at the uh, at the dip and then selling it at a subsidized price to the American uh, people, and that would actually bring uh, price stability. So uh, I'm working actually on an op-ed coming out in the New York Times about how government can take a more aggressive role right now uh, in tackling inflation, and hopefully the administration will take up some of the ideas. My understanding is that, um, you know, prior to the, I, I believe it was uh, 2015, 2016, no, no, it was the last year of the Obama administration. Um, it used to be a crime to export oil from the United States, unrefined, uh, you know, oil. And uh, that got taken down. Um, the same year that we became basically oil independent. We had enough oil that that was all we needed. And now we're exporting about the same amount of oil that we're importing, which, you know, seamlessly puts us in the international markets. So the price of oil is at the worldwide price of oil. But if we went back to banning the export of crude oil um, or even, you know, more, uh, more extreme, banning the export of refined products, wouldn't that allow America to separate itself from the rest of the world in terms of price, and then we could just have a domestically defined price like we do on other products that are not so so heavily traded internationally? Well, I've called with Sheldon Whitehouse and actually Senator Jack Reed for doing exactly that, going back to the ban of exporting oil. I mean, it's crazy that we're uh, exporting it when, when we have needs, and the policy, as you pointed out, for many, many years, up till probably around 2013 or 14, I don't remember the exact year, was banning the export. Uh, and uh, now it would still be somewhat of a global price. I don't think it would be uh, fully set in the United States, but it would give us an ability to have some impact on uh, on U.S. price uh, in, in a way that can help uh, consumers. So I've called on that, and Sheldon Whitehouse and I have said, let's have a windfall profit tax on the excessive oil uh, profits. I mean, they're making billions of dollars. They're not putting it on production. They're giving it in stock buybacks and for uh, increases in dividends. And we ought to be taxing that and giving a rebate to the uh, American public. But in, in general, I just think the gov- we need a more a bolder response, calling out the 
the corporate gouging, calling out the big oil companies, calling for uh, a, a restoring of the export ban, having the government actually purchase things and, and, and subsidize them then at a lower price for the American public. I mean, this is people are hurting. It's not uh, hypothetical. I mean, this is what people are talking about in my district. And I think there are a lot of things we can do as a government to address it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm completely with you. Uh, the other point that I wanted to ask about, if, if I may, is, is uh, uh, housing. Um, we're finding that both uh, foreign investors, particularly uh, Asian, uh, particularly Chinese investors, Chinese billionaires, and some really massive, I mean BlackRock, you know, some really massive uh, hedge fund private equity firms are, are buying up huge chunks of America, uh, American single-family homes and converting them to rental properties, which is reducing the, the availability of houses for sale, driving up the price, and, and they're also driving up the cost of rent nationwide. Is anybody in Congress seriously talking about doing something like, you know, a, a, a lot of countries do this. I know it became very unfashionable with the, uh, you know, during the neoliberal 80s, and, and a lot of countries backed away from it. But basically putting a ban on foreign ownership of uh, single-family homes unless they're actually, you know, the residents of people who have a green card or something like that. And, uh, you know, so no more, no more, you know, millions of Americans' homes being owned by foreign investors. And also doing something about these giant companies that are, that are just, you know, messing with these markets so aggressively, these housing markets. You know, it's worth looking into. It's actually something in my district uh, in particular, because you have huge housing inflation in, 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 in the Bay Area. And one of the reasons is you have all these foreign investors buying these, these houses, uh, and then they don't live there. And it's just pure speculation, and they've been jacking the prices up. So I haven't looked at it, uh, though I've heard many people complain about it, but it's something I, I definitely think is worth looking into, that if you have uh, residential property uh, and uh, places of family homes, that uh, you shouldn't allow people to invest in it if they're uh, from overseas, if they're not actually planning to, to live there within a couple of years. I mean, that seems to me a, a reasonable uh, prospect. You don't want these things to become just speculative uh, investment vehicles. You want that to be actual uh, places people live. Yeah, it's, well, although that's, what, that's what's happened. Okay, thank you. Uh, Rick, uh, let's pick up phone calls here. Rick, in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, you are on the air with Congressman Khanna. Well, hello and good morning. I was wondering, um, are you are your associates aware of the Sunrise Movement Youth, which is a youth-led organization whose two main goals are the Green New Deal and Good Jobs for All, and they have hubs all around the country. Uh, I'm supporting one in St. Paul, uh, Minnesota. Well, thank you for doing that. They're brilliant. They're they're young. They're passionate. They are doing more, I think, for the climate movement than. Than, than than almost anyone I can think of. I mean, and uh, I, I met so many of them when I was uh, co-chair of Bernie's campaign. They were out there. Uh, they've been out there in, in the Capitol on so many causes. Uh, they've been supporting this idea of taxing big oil. Uh, so I, I have so much admiration for Sunrise. Joe in Cupertino, California, you are on the air with your congressman. Good morning, Tom. Thank you very much for taking my call, Congressman. Thank you again. I'm going to be helping bringing some votes in this, uh, starting today to the uh, registrar's office as we continue to vote. But, Ro, I had a question. Why are we giving India $500 million to stop buying weapons from Russia? I haven't been about this war to begin with, but, I mean, $500 million probably a drop in the bucket to some people, but a lot of money to me, and I would think that we have much more uh, better ways to spend that money here domestically than giving it to another country to not buy weapons, to not fire. I'm just really confused. Can you answer? Thanks. Well, Joe, I've, I've been actually clear. I have criticized it, despite being the vice chair of the India American uh, India U.S. caucus in Congress, criticized India for its abstention in the U.N., and said that they should clearly condemn Putin's uh, uh, invasion of Ukraine, and have conveyed that to, to the ambassador. Uh, I look; they're 60 percent dependent on on Russian arms, and the biggest challenge has been that uh, to the the U.S. arms are more expensive than the Russian arms. Uh, and I'm for figuring out how we facilitate the transition. 
and see how to price it appropriately to be competitive. But I agree with you. We shouldn't be giving them aid to not buy arms from, from Russia, especially at this point. It should be pretty obvious that they should be condemning Putin's invasion. Helping you win the water cooler wars. We'll be right back with more of your calls for Congressman Kana. Kana.house.gov and Rep. Ro Kana on Twitter. An amazing new report out from the Global Alliance on Health and Pollution suggesting that uh, pollution is causing around 9 million premature deaths uh, around the world. But uh, 4.5 million of those are the consequence of outdoor air pollution. And the major contributor to that outdoor air pollution is cars, cars and trucks. It turns out that cars and trucks that burn fossil fuels produce little, little, teeny, tiny particles. They're called PM2.5 because they're smaller than 2.5 microns essentially microscopic, that bury themselves deep inside your lungs and then migrate to the heart, the brain. They cause damage throughout the body. They can even cause lung cancer and heart disease and things. And guess what? Electric cars produce none of this. Also, when you hit the brakes on a regular car, you're, you're burning your brake pads and throwing particles out into the air. On an electric car, you hit the brakes, you're slowing it down with the motors. There's a video about the whole thing over at TomHartman.com. Check it out. You're listening to Tom Hartman. And let's see here, Bill in Sierra Blanca, Texas. You are on the air with Congressman Conner. Hi, Congressman Conn uh, and Tom. Uh, yes, uh, I'm just, I know you hear this a lot, and I'm a progressive a long time and donate and everything to all the good people. But, you know, as we heard, Biden's approval rating on Democrats in general is pretty low right now. And I don't, I think that, I mean, just comment after I make this quick um, comment. You know, promises were made to us by then candidate Biden regarding voting rights, infrastructure, and many other ones. I don't have to go down the whole list. Uh, but, you know, I don't, I think that Democrats should be taking a page out of the Republican playbook and start taking names and kicking some butt. If not, we're going to lose if we don't start. I mean, Biden could be doing some of this with executive orders. Why are we so complacent and not wanting to challenge Republicans? Thanks. Well, in candor, I share some of the frustration. Look, we delivered on infrastructure, but there was a whole agenda beyond that. I mean, $15 minimum wage, which is critical now. In fact, I tweeted out about a $15 wage. and uh, Half the folks said a $15 is not nearly enough now. Uh, but we haven't even delivered that. The student loan debt, which is uh, crippling a lot of the kids of working families. Uh, the George Floyd Justice Act, which is sitting there. I mean, we haven't done anything after George Floyd. The ban chokehold to hold uh, officers accountable. Climate, we haven't delivered any legislation uh, there. Uh, so some of these things need to be done by executive order. Some of these we just need to be seen as fighting and, and demanding votes. Uh, but this was the agenda that got people out there in 2020, and uh, we've got to fight more to, 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 to deliver on it. I mean, I, there are people like the Progressive Caucus has been calling for that. Ed, in Chicago, you're on the air with Representative Connor. Yeah, Congressman, I'm wondering if, uh, if the Democratic Party has a, a plan for a massive uh, social media uh, marketing plan for the, for the midterms, because I'm thinking Republicans are looking at what happened in the Philippines and just salivating, because Marcos, he didn't pay any attention to any of the media, didn't debate anybody. His whole campaign, he ran on social media, and it worked extremely well for him, and I'm thinking the Republicans are going to do the same thing. So my question is, do you know if the Democratic Party is planning to spend a lot of money on various social media plans, Facebook, uh, you know, YouTube, etc.? to get the message out. And we are. We're, we're uh, going to be active on social media. I think the key is that we have a, uh, a coordinated message, and that has to be two things. One, uh, here's what we have delivered and what we're fighting for, and uh, here is the uh, uh, you know, craziness of the Republican Party that is uh, standing on the way, in the way. I mean, some of the people that have won these primaries, it is uh, – uh, very chilling. I mean, you have a Republican candidate of governor of Pennsylvania basically saying, uh, I get to appoint the secretary of state and decide who wins the 24 election. So, you know, we've got to make it clear uh, on social media what the stakes are and, of course, what we're delivering. 
Yeah, this, this whole uh, running your ad can or running your campaign entirely on Facebook kind of stuff is like a it's amazing how effective it is. It really is. So, yeah, I think the social media, I mean, the digital media is really uh, breaking through and we haven't caught up yet. I mean, the yeah. campaigns are still way too heavily TV dependent. Yeah. And it's amazing. More than half of Americans say they get their news from Facebook. I mean, that's <laughs> that is shocking. Scary prospect, but yeah. unfortunately yeah. true. Yep. Congressman Ro Khanna is with us. Taking your calls, our national progressive town hall meeting. We'll be right back. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Stephanie in Kankakee, Illinois, you are on the air with Representative Connor. Stephanie? Listening to WCPT? I'm not hearing Stephanie. Michael in Bronx, New York. You are on the air with Congressman Khanna. Greetings, gentlemen. How are you? Good. What's up? All right. Big question. Now, I know Republicans are still trying to overturn Roe v. Wade. We're awaiting that um, decision. Their reasoning is life speaks because um, life begins at conception. But then there's a report that the same GOPs in Congress have blocked or refused to allow a $500 grant for each expectant mother for prenatal care, and their reasoning this time is life begins at birth. How about pressing these same Republicans for this kind of obstructionism and pressing them, which is it? Which the hell is it? Because it's time to expose them, as the earlier caller said. What do you think? Michael, I think that hypocrisy is absolutely correct. I mean, look, the uh, basic belief in terms of uh, Roe versus Wade is it's a matter of fundamental equality, that uh, that a, a woman should have the right to decide herself with her doctor uh, about uh, issues of her reproductive health and on issues of abortion. Uh, but the point that the Republicans say that if they believe that, uh, that life begins at uh, at conception for them then to not to be denying uh, the aid uh, and uh, the resources to, to women for prenatal health uh, when women uh, are asking for that uh, is just cruel. And it shows the hypocrisy that many of them have on the issue. Uh, Mary, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, you are on the air with Congressman Khan. Yes, hi, good morning. With respect to inflation, why, aren't, why isn't the federal government or Congress considering price controls? From what I understand, this has been done in the past by other administrations. And um, wouldn't that help curb the inflation? Well, Mary, you may like my piece that's going to come out in the New York Times. I don't come out for price controls because I think price controls can sometimes lead to, to scarcity when Richard Nixon tried it. But I do think that the government can be more aggressive. And let me try to explain it very simply. Right now, when you look at food prices or gas prices, there's high volatility. It goes low and then it goes high. If the government used our resources to buy that when it was low and then sold that back into the market uh, at a low price, you could bring price stability and essentially using uh, the market mechanism to lower prices. 
and FDR did this. It was preemptive buying. Uh, he, he's done it, and other presidents actually have done it. Even Reagan did this uh, during uh, uh, the famous Reagan cheese. He did it to, to affect dairy prices. So uh, I think market orthodoxy has made us too timid to take the appropriate government intervention that would bring prices down. And I think we need more boldness. I mean, people need to see the government acting to to impact those prices, and they can. And I'm going to try to argue that the president should consider doing that. We're a minute away from a hard break. Yvonne in Silmar, California. Got a very quick question for Congressman, uh, Congressman, excuse me, Congressman Khanna. Good morning. I'll try to be very quick. Um, back to the housing issue. I'm in Southern California, and the city I'm in, we, uh, we're suffering just like everywhere else. Um, and seeing that um, what is workforce housing being ripped out and replaced with luxury condos. And so we were just seeing we've had so many losses of inventory in that manner. Additionally, so your question? we have a, my question is, is there a way to control the number of short term vacation rentals? So a lot of our single family housing stock is being used for short term vacation uh-huh. rentals. OK, thank you. Yvonne. Uh, Yvonne, I, I think there is important. I mean, we need to increase housing supply. That's the first key. And some of those zoning restrictions have been uh, wrong. But I, I am open to looking at regulation, uh, whether it's restricting short-term vacation rentals or foreign investment where people aren't buying houses. I mean, I think we do need regulations to say uh, housing should first be for people who need it, as opposed to speculative investments or vacation homes. Congressman Ro Khanna, vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, representing Silicon Valley in the area and in the U.S. House of Representatives, is with us a National Progressive Town Hall meeting. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Home Records by Aaron Glantz, a Pulitzer Prize finalist. The uh, subtitle is How a Gang of Wall Street Kingpins, Hedge Fund Magnates, Crooked Banks, and Venture Capitalists suckered millions out of their homes and demolished the American dream. It's quite a subtitle. This is from Chapter 21, titled Triumph of the Homewreckers. Donald Trump took the oath of office on a chilly Friday morning delivering an inaugural address that promised an end to the corruption and impotence that had widened America's historic wealth gap. He understood that his victory had been propelled by harnessing the public's rage and envy at having been left behind in the economic recovery, and he promised that he would not forget it. Evoking FDR's famous forgotten man speech from 1932 that promised to prioritize the needs of, quote, the man at the bottom of the economic pyramid, Trump declared, quote, the forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. Politicians had prospered, he said, but jobs had evaporated, factories closed. Quote, the establishment protected itself, but not the citizens of our country. Their victories have not been your victories. Their triumphs have not been your triumphs. And while they celebrated in our nation's capital, there was little chance to celebrate for struggling families all across our land. This all changes, starting right here and right now, Trump proclaimed, because this moment is your moment. It belongs to you. This is your day. This is your celebration. End of quote. The moment, however, belonged not to the great mass of struggling Americans, but to the new president's most ardent supporters, flamboyant businessmen, who profited off the pain of the housing bust and were now poised to steer the ship of state for at least the next four years. As Trump reached out his hand and swore to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States of America, his close friend and inaugural committee chair, Tom Barack, stood behind him, smiling in a blue scarf and black overcoat. Afterward, Barack and Trump embraced at the U.S. Capitol's inaugural platform, the homewreckers, had arrived. Barack didn't take an official position in the Trump administration, reportedly turning down an offer to be White House Chief of Staff, Treasury Secretary, or Ambassador to Mexico. Roger Stone told me he could have had any position he wanted, but working for the government would have meant making a lot less money. I don't think he has the belly for public service, Stone observed. Other home wreckers had no such qualms. If they changed the rules of the game now, they could make more money later. Steve Mnuchin, by now dubbed the foreclosure king by his critics, was confirmed as Treasury Secretary. His top deputy at One West, uh, the, the bank, uh, Joseph Odin, became the nation's chief bank regulator, the comptroller of the currency. Wilbur Ross, the bankruptcy tycoon who bought Florida banks, Florida's Bank United, became the Commerce Secretary, charged with everything from negotiating trade deals to overseeing the U.S. Census. 
Steve Schwartzman, the chairman of Blackstone, became chair of the White House's Strategic and Policy Forum, a group of business leaders who were to meet regularly with Trump. Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan Chase was named vice chair. Though the group disbanded over the summer after Trump's statement that bigotry and violence on many sides were responsible for a white nationalist's killing a counter-protester in Charlottesville, Virginia, Schwartzman, along with Barack, is said to be among a small group of outsiders, including Sean Hannity, who are put directly through to the president rather than being routed through the normal communications channels. Schwartzman has flown on Air Force One. On February 12, 2017, less than a month into Trump's presidency, while the commander-in-chief was dining with Prime Minister Shinzo Abe of Japan at his Mar-a-Lago golf club, Schwartzman threw a massive 70th birthday bash at his Four Winds estate, barely a mile and a half away. This time, neither Donald nor Melania Trump could make it, but daughter Ivanka and son-in-law Jared Kushner did, along with Mnuchin, Ross, and a who's who of high finance and culture, from Henry Kravis, co-founder of the hostile takeover firm Kohlberg Kravis Roberts, to the fashion designer Donatella Versace. The party featured live camels, trapeze artists, fireworks, and a gondolier. Schwartzman's tennis courts were covered with Asian-themed staging. The man who'd hired Patti LaBelle to hang, sing Happy Birthday for his 60th was serenaded by Gwen Stefani on his 70th. After Happy Birthday, the peroxide pop star took a quick twirl with the birthday boy around a dance floor constructed inside a two-story tent where acrobats shimmied and jumped, the New York Times reported. Unlike a decade before, when Schwartzman's glorious pre-bust bash sparked condemnation from sources as conservative as the Wall Street Journal, this time the festivities sparked very little blowback. In her story, Bloomberg reporter Amanda Gordon reveled in the comparison with Schwartz, Schwartzman's 60th. There were some differences, though, she wrote. Remember that beautiful fur coat on Melania Trump? It was New York in February on a weeknight. This time, no bundling required, with many folks golfing and swimming all day before a balmy night and fireworks alongside a full moon. Howard Marks, the co-chairman of Oak Tree Capital, a vulture firm that had bought and flipped 3,000 foreclosures, told Gordon, quote, The world is an uncertain place. A lot of people are unhappy with a lot of other people. There are a lot of things that people are upset about. So it's nice to have an evening where everybody's happy, harmonious, and upbeat, end quote. There was a lot of celebrating to be had. In June, the gang got together for the marriage of Steve Mnuchin and his third wife, actress Louise Linton, almost two decades younger than him. Uh, and then it continues from there. The book is Home Records by Aaron Glantz. And welcome back. Kim in Santa Rosa, California. You are on the air with Representative Kana. Uh, thank you. Um, Mr. Kana, the reason I called is for the housing thing also. In Fresno, California, there's big companies coming in and buying up the mobile home park and raising the rents. And most people like me, that we live in mobile home parks because we can't afford anything else. We, pay, we buy our homes, but we pay rent on the land. And I just don't understand these companies coming in and buying up all the affordable housing, and then people can't afford it anymore. I completely agree with you. I've got a number of mobile home parks in my district in Sunnyvale. Congresswoman Cindy Axney from Iowa and I have a bill actually on the mobile home parks, uh, basically bill of rights for mobile home park owners, that uh, there has to be consent from mobile home park uh, owners uh, before something can be sold. There can't. There have to be regulations in terms of the increases on rent. Uh, the, the There should be grants from the federal government to allow uh, mobile home park owners to, to, to pool together to buy uh, and control the, the, their own parks. Uh, so I, I'm very sympathetic, and it's happened in my district uh, where I've stood up to some of these big uh, companies that wanted to come in and uh, and jack up the rents, and we were successful actually in Sunnyville. If you look it up, in in stopping that, you might want to. Uh, it's very very regional, but you may want to consider floating adding floating homes to that. We're having the same sort of thing happening here in Oregon, where they're they're uh, fairly popular. I know they are up in Washington State as well, and I'm not sure about California, but just FYI. That's a great. Yeah, John in Seattle. John, you are on the air with Representative Kana. Thank you so much, sir. Uh, thank you, Congressman, and uh, thank you, Tom. Uh, my question was about uh, refugees in Ukraine. I do understand that uh, America uh, accepted 100,000, uh, while Poland uh, is getting 300 million. Three million. Uh, I mean, three million, three million, I'm sorry. And my, my problem is, 
I do understand. I, I don't understand. I mean, uh, I don't understand the concept behind uh, about that. I'm sorry, I'm nervous a little bit. But my question is, it could also destabilize Poland. What are we doing to help Poland on, in that matter? Well, look, I agree that we could be taking uh, more refugees. I do understand why a lot of Ukrainians want to be close to Ukraine, because many of them want to go back uh, to Ukraine. Uh, and don't mind saying many don't want to come all the way to the United States because they're hopeful that the war will end and they'll be able to go back. But we uh, should be taking more if, if more want to come, and we should be providing uh, Poland with economic assistance uh, to, uh, to deal with the refugees and seeing... Uh, uh, how we can make that more distributed, at least in Europe, if people want to stay close to Ukraine. Congressman, we just have 27 seconds to the break. I'm curious your thoughts on your colleagues, uh, the, the Republicans in the House of Representatives, I think it was 57 of them or something like that, that just voted against aid for Ukraine. Is this a growing trend in the Republican Party to take Putin's side in this? I mean, it's an inexplicable when you're looking at the horrific uh, brutality that Putin is uh, inflicting on Ukraine. But you have a growing isolationism, and it's dangerous. I mean, we had this kind of isolationism after World War One, and FDR had to do a lot to, to overcome it. And I fear that the country is seeing again in the Republican side this growing isolationist movement. I, I agree. I do, too. Congressman Ro Khanna is with us taking your calls. We'll be back. We'll be right back. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at Squeezed.com. And welcome back. Congressman Ro Khanna is with us taking your calls on the issues of the day in a National Progressive Town Hall meeting. Ronald in Salinas, California. You are on the air with Congressman Khanna. Actually, it's, it's San Jose, uh, California. But, uh, oh, San Jose. Okay. I just wanna, no problem. Congressman, I just want to thank you for your work and uh, your allyship with the labor trade. I'm with the IBW332. I'm a South Bay Labor Council delegate. I'm actually here in Sacramento with the California State Association of Electrical Workers. And uh, I'm a young kid from East San Jose, and the only way I can be here is for, because of people like you that uh, have a true allyship with labor. And I appreciate you so much, man. So that's all I really wanted to say. So thank you. Oh. Well, you're, very kind, you're very kind to call in. And I uh, think it's so important that we invest in uh, in, in the trade. You know, one of the things that people don't realize is that with the electric kill trades, it's going to take almost a million uh, electricians to have uh, the smart grid. And those are very good paying jobs, and they should be union jobs, and we need to uh, continue to make those uh, uh, investments in those jobs and in the apprenticeship programs. David in North Miami Beach, Florida, you're on the air with Representative Connor. Hey, y'all. Yes, Congressman. Uh, big question. Uh, since we waste $6 trillion in carbon subsidies, uh, why can't we just turn them off and hand $1,000 a lot more good and save money? David, I've been leading this fight. You know, I chair the Climate Committee in uh, Congress on the Subcommittee on Oversight. And about a year ago, we had Greta Thunberg in uh, testifying to eliminate all the 
fossil fuel subsidies, just to have a level playing field. And we have uh, been fighting for this, leading on this. We tried to get a number of those fossil fuel subsidy repeals are part of the climate package and build back better. Uh, not all of them, but some of them. Of course, we've got to get that climate package passed to repeal uh, some of these subsidies. Doug in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Yeah, hi, Congressman. Um, uh, thanks for being a progressive and doing all that you do. Uh, I would suggest some of us uh, think that it might be called realists rather than progressives, since the, uh, there's an intent to make it a dirty word. But uh, what I really called about was uh, the fact that uh, I would like to urge you, as a member of the uh, Armed Services Committee, to look into Iron Dome as a possibility for Ukraine uh, for a defense for cities. Uh, it's being used in Israel. Israel developed it. The United States put money into it. Um, we deserve to have a say in uh, how it is um, uh, used to help uh, defend democracy. And um, a problem is a group of Congress people I am aware of, because I called around a bunch of Congress people. Uh, I didn't call you, but I found out that there was an attempt to get the Prime Minister of Israel to sign on to this, and he refused. So if that could be begun again, a diplomatic or whatever um, to urge uh, Israel to share Iron Dome technology. Zelensky mentioned it once and then he backed off. There's maybe a third rail or something to do with Israel. We don't know. Uh, I just want to see it done because it would save so many lives. Uh, we Iron got, Dome. We got it, Doug. We'll, we'll, let's, okay. we'll get an answer here. Doug, I'm happy to, to, to look into it. And I, I mean, intuitively, what you say makes sense that the Iron Dome technology uh, could sh save lives of uh, being able to shoot down rockets coming in. I don't know the specifics of it, but I'm happy to look into it in the Armed Services Committee. And certainly, if it were the case that that technology uh, would save Ukrainian lives, then I would advocate uh, very strongly that, that we should provide that. Matt in St. Paul, Minnesota, you're on the air with Representative Connor. Thank you, uh, Congressman. I just wanted to get an update on a status uh, Medicare privatization under Trump. It's called direct contracting entities. And I know that there's a letter went out to uh, Medicare from Congress. I think it had 62 signatures on it. Yours was probably one of them, I hope. Uh, what, what, is the current, what is the current status of the DCE issue with Medicare? Because I'm on Part B intentionally. I don't want to do advantage. That's privatization. I want to stick with Part B, but Part B is being undermined by DCEs. So... Uh, here, here's what hap happened, my understanding, and Tom has been all on top of this. I mean, you had the uh, a, a, an effort to have a pilot program to see how you could have uh, not fee-for-services but bundled payments. And that's fine if people want to participate, but the problem was that people were not told that they were going to be put into this pay this pilot program. They were not told that the program was going to be administered by Medicare Advantage and not traditional Medicare. And without their consent, they were basically enrolled in these quote-unquote pilot programs. And that's outrageous. I mean, you can't just change someone's insurance to private insurance. If people want to have uh, experimentation within normal Medicare for bundled payments, fine. But ask people's consent to do it. Tell them who's providing it. Uh, so the, the, the whole thing is outrageous, and we've called for a stop to it. Uh, and my understanding is that they have stopped uh, some of it, but, uh, you know, it, it still has to be uh, – there's still some people who were forcibly changed and aren't back to, to their original Medicare. Yeah, it's still rolling along. Peter in Tampa, Florida, you're on the air with Representative Kana. Hello, Tom. Hello, Representative Kana. Uh, I have a question in the vein of doing something big and visible because I haven't heard anyone talking about it recently. Where is rescheduling cannabis coming in? Yeah, I'm obviously for getting it off the federal schedule and legalizing cannabis, but, uh, you know, the president is not. And uh, until we have the president change on that, I, I don't think it's going to uh, go anywhere. Um, that would, that would be a, an administrative uh, thing, wouldn't it? Congress doesn't have to weigh in on this unless they're trying to, you know, I mean, Congress could override it, but but uh, isn't that a, a matter between the president and the DEA and all that sort of thing, or am I misunderstanding? I, I, I mean, I think Congress could require it, and there's a bill that hasn't been able to get a vote on it, but I, my understanding is you're right, that the president also has the discretion on it. Uh, but, you know, he was 
he campaigned saying he wasn't for for this, and so I I think it's going to be a tough lift to to get him there. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Michael in Los Angeles, you're on the air with Representative Kana. Hello, uh, gentlemen. Thank you so much for taking my call, uh, Congressman. Real quick. Uh, this is kind of a, a, a two-part and a one-part question, but the California, or I just read that California is going to be experiencing a lot of rolling blackouts this summer, uh, and they say a lot of it is due to the surge in electronic vehicle purchases. Um, and I'm just, I just wanted to know, is, is Congress looking at a way of alternative energy in order to uh, uh, help out the electrical grid? And also, too, with, with, with California having so many droughts, isn't there some sort of uh, congressional bill that can uh, be put together to pipe water from other states into California in order to help us out? Well, the first thing I think we ought to do is uh, look at who's controlling PG&E, because PG&E has been controlled by uh, private profits, and they have not made the sufficient investment uh, to, uh, to, to, to take care of California's energy needs and to be secure. So I have called for uh, the, the states to really take over uh, PG&E or for uh, customers to take over PG&E. Uh, but the second thing is that, you, you know, this is why we need the president's bill on a moonshot on renewable energy uh, that would be able to also uh, support the, the, the smart grid. And, you know, part of my water infrastructure bill with ben, Brenda Lawrence that would improve uh, the uh, water supply to states like California is also part of it. So we need the both climate legislation for the reasons that you're, you're uh, addressing. Larry in 29 Palms, California. You're on the air with Representative Connor. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, I, I just, um, I'm speaking now of uh, people who have 100%, they can run their house 100% on the solar that they have. Uh, California has imposed a minimum bill requirement on all residential customers, no matter, I mean, I have four different friends that have that they could run 100% electrical on their on their grid, but they still have to pay an electrical bill, even if they use zero in California. Well, that, that, that's uh, outrageous. I mean, it's the first time hearing about this, and I don't know if that's a problem because of PG&E's billing or if that's a problem because of the uh, Public Utility Commission. Uh, but if you write to me, especially since I'm a member of Cal Congress from California, I'm happy to to look into what policy change we can do so that, that, that people aren't being charged if they're not using uh, electricity and are generating it themselves. Mike in Detroit, Michigan, you are on the air with Representative Connor. Good afternoon, and uh, let me just say real quick, I think every one of the uh, Congress people up there ought to do what you're doing and spend one hour a day taking calls. That's great that you're doing it, Tom. You've been doing it a while, even with Bernie. And I think every one of them needs to take calls from their constituents. You can never get a hold of them. Amen. But uh, right, right to my question. Uh, you're always talking about uh, taxing the rich. Why can't you just uh, propose a new tax plan and take the money in and pay down the debt? Why does it got to be attached to some other new program or some other new spending? Or why can't you just change the tax code to tax the rich and help pay down that massive debt of ours? Well, Mike, first of all, thank you. I enjoy doing it. I, uh, I get smarter every time I do one of these town halls and hear from folks. I, uh, look, I think that the problem is that uh, people need uh, b basic education. People need basic health care. You need basic child care. We don't have the things that uh, uh, allow for a, a middle-class life and allow for people to achieve the American dream. And you've had extraordinary wealth inequality. And so part of the the idea is that people who have really benefited, who made billions of dollars, ought to pay a, a reasonable tax so that everyone can go to a good public school, so that everyone can have health care, so that everyone can have uh, education. Uh, and that actually will lead to economic growth that would allow us to uh, pay down the deficit. But if, if I've said, okay, look, if you want to pay some portion of the deficit down with a, a, a tax, increase a tax, uh, fine. And, you know, that's something we've been floating, trying to get Build Back Better uh, done. Uh, but at least raise the taxes on people who can afford to pay it and are currently not paying their fair share. Congressman Rokana taking your calls from a National Progressive Town Hall meeting here on the Tom Hartman Program. He's the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. 
And welcome back. Congressman Ro Khanna taking your calls. John in West Palm Beach, Florida. You are on the air with Representative Khanna. Good morning. Good afternoon. I don't know what time it is over there. So. <laughs> okay. I do psychology over here. I graduated University of Georgia in psychology. And on November 1st, 2021, CNN reported with the American Psychological Association, the APA, that they apologize for their lack of stance on systemic racism, that they failed in the discipline. John, what's your question for the congressman? And they became complicit. I want to know what his stance is and what his thing is on systemic racism. Okay, great. Thank you. John, systemic racism just means that there were 250 years in this country of slavery, followed by 100 years of Jim Crow, and that led to uh, black Americans being denied uh, systematically of first freedom and second opportunities, opportunities such as being able to buy a house in any community, opportunities such as the GI Bill, opportunities such as being able to get education. And they, we have to recognize the results of that and the results that 350-some years of discrimination has had on our, uh, the fabric of America and the intentional in trying to uh, correct that. And, and let's uh, teach it in our schools, too. Ron in Boynton Beach, Florida, you're on the air with Representative Khanna. Hello, good afternoon. I'm just wondering, uh, I got a question for uh, Representative O'Connor. You are on with him. The Progressive, Cau- the Progressive Caucus has a lot of great ideas and policies that they'd like to go forward with. But then when it comes time to endorsing candidates that would help them get those things done, they wind up endorsing corporate-type candidates uh, against people that are progressive, and uh, and then there's not enough progressives to actually get something done. And then they actually vote for leadership that's corporate, and that leadership is going to make, deny those things to get done. So, so how is this going to change? Well, I, I don't think that's a fully fair characterization. I, look, we endorsed Summer Lee, who just won a great progressive in Pennsylvania, uh, we've endorsed Erica Smith in North Carolina, progressive who ended up coming short. Uh, we uh, have supported Jamie, who ran against Kurt Schrader, didn't get the progressive endorsement, but neither did Kurt Schrader. I think that the place you're referring to is Nina Turner, and I stayed out of that race. I, I think the progressive caucus should have stayed neutral in that race. We had endorsed Nina Turner the first time. It's hard to endorse against the sitting incumbent, and we should have stayed neutral. But overall, if you look at who the Progressive Caucus has endorsed. We've endorsed many progressive candidates and challengers across the country, and many are winning. Yeah, amen. Morris in Long Beach, uh, California. You're on the air with Representative Khanna. Okay, I just wanted to know if the Democratic Party sent a thank you letter to the Republican Party. Y'all need to do that because you're going to buck a historical trend. You're going to take the House back, believe that. Check this out. you got inflation, you got the insurrection, and you got abortion. And I think between the three of those, that's what's going to mobilize more people than any other. It's going to be the abortion issue. I don't believe women are going to accept that. And I want to know if you guys have sent a thank you card to the Republican Party because they're so stupid right now. They're just trying to hand you the hand you the house. Who sent that thank you card out? That's all I want to know. And thank you very much. <laughs> well, look, I, I agree with you that we, can, we have a path to keeping our house majority. I don't believe the uh, people are just cynical who say it's lost. And I think the real reason is... Uh, the choice. And you look at people on the other side, and some of them are explicitly running on the big lie. They're running on, uh, in some cases, saying they're going to overturn the 2024 election, even before it's happened. Uh, They're running on uh, banning abortion federally in in many cases, meaning that even in California it would be banned if the Republicans controlled both chambers and the presidency. So when that becomes fully obvious and when this becomes a choice, I, I think we stand a very good chance. Yeah, and a fine thing it would be. Congressman Ro Khanna, a vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus representing the 17th District of California. Khanna.house.gov is his website. You can tweet him at Rep. Ro Khanna. Congressman, thanks again so much for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom. It's always a great pleasure. It, it absolutely is for us, too. Thank you. And keep up the great work.
Our book today in the Tom Harbin Book Club is The Black Panthers, Portraits from an Unfinished Revolution, edited by uh, Briasha and Yohuro Williams. This is from Chapter 1, In Defense of Self-Defense, Pathways to the Black Panther Party. People joined the Black Panther Party for many different reasons. The moment of politicization was different for everyone, but a few were commonly shared, including the 1963 bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, and the 1965 Watts Urban Rebellion. A more general sense of frustration and alienation compelled others to join the Panthers' ranks. The party exerted enormous pull on the imagination of the members, especially those who had experienced police brutality. In the rebellious spirit of the times, the party's bold stance on self-defense resonated with those seeking fresh alternatives for achieving social justice and black liberation. Party members expressed a deep appreciation for other aspects of the Panthers program, including its community service programs, which grew out of a genuine love for the people. My neighborhood friend, a sister that I've known since I was about 11 years old, said, Claudia, I want you to go with me. We're going to go and hear these Panthers speak at PS 92 which was an elementary school in our community. I said, okay, I'll go, I'm down. I listened to these brothers speak and I heard the pitch. I saw the determination and I saw the compassion. I thought, wow, this is the feeling that I used to get when I went into clubs and popped my fingers and got on the dance floor. It was the same feeling, except it was bigger for me now. It was bigger than me. It was full of love of the people. No longer did we have to argue and fight about what are you looking at me like that for? Or don't step on my sneaker, or this is my block. Now we really had something to fight for. We had a people to fight for. This is bigger than any gang or club. We had a goal. We had something to look forward to, which was the betterment of black people. It was most definitely something that I was searching for, but I didn't yet know that I was searching. I didn't find it. It fell on me. That was the first meeting. That's what actually started the wheels in my mind for me to become political. I was rank and file. I did a lot of things. The easiest way to say it is just to imagine worker bees. You got one queen, everyone else works. Rank and file, those were the worker bees. We did it all. The one thing I enjoyed the most was teaching the political education classes on 7th Avenue in front of the Harlem office. That was the most fruitful. But anything I did, it was for the love of the people. Wherever I was, wherever I was sent, or whatever I had to do, it didn't matter anymore because it was for the love of the people. We were trying to get the word out. If I had to sell 125 papers in a, in a day and I got close to that goal, then I did a good job. I was originally from Queens and came out of the Corona branch of the Black Panther Party. When the Panther 21 were arrested and went to jail, in order to keep those offices open and functioning, Panthers were sent all over the city to Harlem. I was one of the Panthers that ended up in the Harlem branch. That's how I got to be there on Wednesday nights to give the PE classes, the political education classes. I was extremely nervous the first time, but once I found my voice, then it went like clockwork. A lot of the people in the community who were just walking by were like, well, let me stop and see what this little girl is talking about, because I was indeed a little girl at that time. We started off every PE class with a 10-point program, and we ended every PE class with, okay, let me hear from you guys. What do you want to see different in your community, and how are you living? Then we would get the feedback, and then we would know how to concentrate our efforts. Rent strikes were crazy, because if you had to live like that, why should you pay rent? We did clothing drives. We did food drives. We did, of course, the breakfast program. There were a lot of other things that happened, and they might have been more meaningful, but those PE classes stayed with me. We were outside on the street in front of the office. When you were giving a class or you were having a talk inside the office and there were only Panthers around you, the feeling was just different than outside on the street. The Panthers knew what you were doing because they were Panthers, and they were doing the same thing. Outside, there were constant questions and answers with the people. You had to give yourself up when you were outside in that crowd. You never knew who was going to say, we don't care about that, we don't care about you, you need to go away. There were a lot of people that just did not know where we were coming from and were afraid that if they were seen in the office or if they were seen asking questions, that they'd get reprisals, that they'd end up getting hurt. They were afraid. Things went so fast. Time seems to accelerate when you're always looking over your shoulder. At this time, it was all-out war against the Panthers, and brothers are being shot down in the street or set up or going to jail for years. We have brothers in jail since that time, 40, 41 years. We've had brothers that we've lost on the inside that we can't let the world forget. The government said, okay, we're going to lock them up and throw away the key and no one will ever care. But it's not true. We want them out. We want freedom for all political prisoners. 
We don't want any more of them to die on the inside. That's the biggest injustice. There were times when our cadre consisted of almost nothing but women, and that was when the brothers were locked up or had to go underground. I remember being on a front line against a policeman on horseback and being six months pregnant. What we wanted was a simple street light, and we got the community out there and we blocked traffic. I didn't know whether I was going to be trampled, my baby killed, but I knew I had to be there. I was an active member of the party from 1968 to 1971, and in those few years, I aged 10, 15 years. We didn't have much time to be little girls. We went straight to womanhood. Talking about these things is bringing up all of these feelings, though I hadn't thought about or touched on them for a long time. It seems that as you get older and you look back on the things that you've done in your life, you say, oh my God, I could have gotten killed then. When you're young, fear is not really in your vocabulary, and once you look back, you wonder, why wasn't I afraid? We didn't have much time to be afraid. It was all about survival. The Black Panthers. So are we now inured to this? You know, residents of Washington, D.C., who have no political power, right? D.C. has more people in it than the state of Vermont. Uh, D.C. has more people in it than the state of Wyoming. There may be other states that D.C. has more people in, uh, but I know for sure of those two. And yet, they have no representation in Congress. Eleanor Holmes Norton is their representative in the House of Representatives. They're one representative. But she cannot vote. She cannot, you know, she can speak, but that's about it. And even her ability to speak is narrowly circumscribed. And there's nobody representing Washington, D.C. in the United States Senate. And so he made the point that we've kind of learned helplessness. Marty Seligman was a, a, a psychologist. I believe he's passed away. I might be wrong. Um, but he, he uh, back in the, in the 80s and 90s, he was doing some absolutely brilliant work, uh, some of which has been heavily criticized in the years since because it involved dogs um, getting shocks. Um, but, it, you know, he did this work about learned helplessness and uh, found that, you know, if you put a dog in a, in a, a two-compartment bed, um, you know, two sides, left and right side, and one side, and they put the dog on the left side and then give it a shock, it will jump to the right side. But if you put it in the left side and give it a shock and restrain it so it can't jump to the right side, after a short while and a certain number of shocks, the dog will just give up and just whimper every time it gets a shock. And then you take away all the restraints and the dog still does that. This is called learned helplessness. And I think this is happening in America. This is, you know, like my op-ed today at HartmanReport.com. It's like, why aren't we getting the stuff that the majority of us want? The majority of Americans want debt-free college. The majority of Americans want a national health care system. The majority of Americans want Social Security strength. The majority of Americans want a higher minimum wage and the right to unionize. Why aren't we getting those things? Because for 42 years, billionaires and right-wing corporations have been running our politics. And now it's like... We've got this mass death in the United States. We had a million people die of COVID, more than any other country in the world. The New York Times reported that if Donald Trump and the United States government in 2020 had responded to COVID the same way that the Australian government, Scott Morrison's, who is a conservative, he was very much like Trump, Scott Morrison's conservative government in Australia, if we had responded the same way they did, we would, have had, we would have had 900,000 fewer deaths in this country. Let that sink in. We tolerated an additional 900,000 deaths because Donald Trump politicized COVID. And then we've got all these shootings. I mean, we've got an average of 100,000 shootings a year in the United States, 45,000 deaths. And we're just shrugging our shoulders. A guy buys a semi-automatic weapon of war and walks into a supermarket last week shooting black people because he can? Because he's trying to make black people feel like nothing's safe, nowhere? He thinks he's kicking off the next, you know, the, the, the race war, the civil war? The same as Tim McVeigh thought that and, and, you know, shooter after shooter has thought that? Have we just, have we learned helplessness here? Have we become inured to it? I'm beginning to think we have, and I, and I think that the, the way to, sh to shake ourselves out of this is to, is to start having successes. One of the things that Solomon found with his dogs 
was that when he showed them, you know, picked them up and moved them from the shock side to the non-shock side, oh, I can do that? And they figured out they didn't have to get shocked anymore. Here on the place where smart people get their news. Welcome back. Okay, in geeky science today, the Doomsday Glacier set to cause global catastrophe. This is pretty amazing. The Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica is 120 kilometers wide. It contains roughly 480 square, 480,000 square kilometers of ice. It's one of the largest in the world. It is a substantial part of the West Antarctic ice sheet. And when the Thwaites Glacier melts, it will, or it, yeah, it will bump up sea levels by around two feet, which is enough to cause, shall we say, a calamity? <laughs> two feet is enough to put almost all of the Netherlands permanently underwater, uh, writes Will Lockett over on Medium.com. Permanently underwater, submerged significant parts of New York, Tokyo, Dhaka, Mumbai, Miami, and Shanghai. Many shipping ports and commercial fisheries will be rendered useless. All because one glacier melted. And now, when is this going to happen? Well, it's looking like it may come even closer to us. Today, it's 2022 right now. They're looking at it could be gone by 2030, the next eight years. Living on the water? Get ready. (laughs) Sean, you're living in a floating home. I I live near the water. It's like, whoa, this is serious stuff. It's, I'm not joking. I'm, I am, and I'm not laughing. I'm nervous. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 